From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Hello and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we're not recording in the studio, but from home via phone and computer. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University is located in the Great Black Swamp, long a meeting place of the Wyandot, Shawnee, Lenape, Ottawa, Kickapoo, Fox, Potawatomi, Erie, Miami, Peoria, Chippewa, and Seneca Indian tribes. We honor the rich history of this land and its indigenous inhabitants, past and present. Today's episode is one of a mini-series focusing on a National Endowment for the Humanities-sponsored project toward a pedagogy from crisis, adaptive teaching and learning at Bowling Green State University during COVID-19. Today, I'm joined by the project's directors, Dr. Chad Iwert-Stuffy and Dr. Emil Karchalou. Chad is an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing in the English department. Emil Kar is department chair and associate professor of history at BGSU. Thank you both for joining me today. I'd like to start with some backstory on the project. Uh, The project focuses on the current global pandemic, which has completely restructured personal and professional lives. Can you describe how the project came together and evolved into what it is now? And especially, what is the role of pedagogy in in this project? I think speaking specifically to pedagogy, um, one of the reasons why it's so important is because everybody pretty much in the world at this point, right, has moved to online education. And even though that's something that has a fairly rich tradition um, in in my field, I don't believe there are very many fields that have been really seriously thinking about online education. So pedagogy is kind of our entree into thinking about how when we have to all learn virtually, how you do that and how you do that well and how you value your students, especially right now in this time of crisis. And Emilcar, from a practical standpoint, how did you and Chad connect on this project and how did you evolve its shape and what you were imagining you were seeking to study and do? Well, I mean, it, it was connections that someone else said, I mean, you're both thinking about this at the same time. And so why don't you talk with each other? And, and, and that was it. So I, I think it highlights the importance of the importance of those informal interactions in, in getting things done and, and pushing things forward. It advanced really, really fast. Uh, we both started talking about what we had in mind. It was something different, what each of us had in mind, but we knew that there was a lot that, that we were trying to accomplish that had the same goals. And so it, it was it, it was a very quick, fast process. And, and uh, I I, uh, I was surprised about that. Uh, and, and, and it was part of the uh, one, one great joy, I think, of, of putting this together. Chad, I'd like to talk a bit about your specific background and how it shaped the project. So you your work focuses on disability and accessibility in what you refer to as public environments. Can you talk about what that means and how you think about disability and accessibility in ways that connected in this project? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I think when when we talk about disability, we're usually thinking, and historically, disability has been thought of as, as kind of like a legal term, right? So um, somebody designated as disabled would be entitled to certain benefits under the law. Um, but that is really changing in scholarship, um, especially um, from scholarship, I'll just highlight uh, from disabled women of color like Mia Mingus, Alice Wong, Sandy Ho, and others who work on the Disability Visibility Project. They really define access as a form of love in order to help build a world where accessibility is understood as an act of love. Another scholar, Tanya Tichkotsky, who does work in Canada, in her book, The Question of Access, defines access as an interpretive relation between bodies. So these really inform the way that I have been thinking about access in this project as not just a legal standard for who is entitled to certain forms of accommodation, but really involving the very specific students and teachers who are within a classroom, what that environment looks like, um, what technologies are being used, and how we might kind of explode how we think of access in order to meet students, instructors, anybody's guest speakers who are in, in these environments that we're hosting, meeting them where they're at and making sure that we can create environments where everyone is welcomed into that, not just from a legal standpoint, but also just from a relational standpoint and social standpoint. And with that in mind, what do you hope we're going to learn from the pandemic that will help us rethink issues of disability and accessibility? Yeah, well, some of my uh, specific work is in communication access. So a lot of what I have done in the past is worked with speech-to-text writers and uh, speech-to-text readers, specifically disabled and deaf people who receive transcription and speech-to-text writing as a form of accommodation. And what's very interesting is there's a lot of ongoing discussion about what creates appropriate or good quality communication access. I think a lot of us are familiar with like closed captions, for example, on a television screen, uh, but that's just one methodology and is actually not the reigning methodology that's used in educational environments. That's referred to as a meaning for meaning transcription. So um, my hope is that uh, this ongoing work will help kind of expose some of the cracks in, in that understanding of access as sort of like a checklist. So if I just attach a transcript to my educational videos or my lectures, then it's accessible. I think I'd like to push back against that a little bit and hear from people who, you know, may be in an online environment for the first time and not really sure about what they're doing, kind of meeting people where they're at, finding out what's going on, what's working well, what's not working well, where we can be directing our focus as we continue to think about access and educational environments. Great. Amilcar, you have a wide range of research interests, but all of it touches in some way about the concept of the environment, whether you're talking about environmental change in Mexico uh, or collaborating with students and community members to dissolve, do to design and install interactive, interpretive, interpretive historical trails right here in Bowling Green. Can you talk about how your past work exploring environmental histories, as well as public engage, engagement, influenced this project? Yeah, so from one point of view, I mean, one contribution, I think it's practical. Uh, so this, this got me thinking into the ways in which we can put teams together and, and work 
to solve a particular problem. And in this case, the problem was, uh, I mean, the impact of COVID in, in, in our institutional environment and, and, and intellectual environment. So that's one contribution that I think we, sh- we should not dismiss. It's that, that it gets the synapses going in a way. But yeah, I think this got me thinking. I mean, environmental history got me thinking in two other ways. One was that uh, when we were talking about this, I think I was wrapping up my class on environment, American environmental history. Uh, and at that point, it was an online class. It's a class that always was very hands-on. We were always uh, doing field trips, walking in the woods, doing uh, doing nature journaling. And suddenly you had to rethink completely what you were doing. So that got me, uh, I mean, I, I think the mind to think from the point of view of the pedagogy from crisis, right? Uh, but at the same time, how important it was for students and for me to have that connection, explicit connection to the environment and environment as nature, right, in quotation marks, but also the virtual environment and how they, all the environments intersect with each other in, in, in a common experience. The way that students were reacting to the COVID pandemic via their comments on the nature journaling, for instance, uh, was something that, that, uh, that got me thinking a lot. Uh, the, the other way that I was uh, thinking about this was uh, from an environmental perspective uh, was precisely through what is the environment, right? And how we create environments, natural environments, virtual environments, etc. And to me, this, this looked like the creation of a new environment, that we are we're all creating new environments, to put it in, in a way. That's great. We know that the pandemic has not only exposed, but deepened vast racial and socioeconomic inequalities. And we see this with infection rates, uh, illness and death by Black, Indigenous and Latinx and other communities of color. Um, But we also see economic impacts of the virus and in how it's affecting our students. In terms of our teaching, what are some ways that you think we can help address or mitigate some of those disparate impacts? I think that's such an important question and one that really, I think we can can be hopeful about an answer right now, but I think it's going to take some time. Um, I know today, for example, um, when we're recording this, right now we've got 7,000, over 7,000 new cases in Ohio alone of coronavirus. Um, so I think that we're, we're really not seeing all of the effects right now. Um, but with those that we know and that you've identified, Jolie, it kind of takes me back to what Milkar's response um, just was, where we're in a situation right now where we can be actively contributing to new built environments. Um, online education is not without its faults in terms of the ways that it can help support sexism, racism, ableism. But we also are able, I think, to really combat those in new ways since now everybody is going to have to be thinking about these in their built environments. So, I mean, from the limited kind of and ongoing things that we're seeing, I I would suggest to acknowledge that this is going on. That's the first step, to acknowledge that coronavirus is not impacting educational environments in equal ways. It's disproportionately, just as you're saying, affecting communities of color. 
So we need to come together, I think, to address these, participate in ongoing research, encourage students to be speaking out when they're experiencing food insecurities, housing insecurities, technology insecurity, connecting them with the resources that are available through the university. I think that, yeah, that's something that's kind of on all of us as educators. Anything you'd like to add, Amilcar? Well, I mean, I, I, I want to echo in a way both uh, what Chad said and, and also what the, uh, I mean, the way that, that you placed the question. I think the, the COVID pandemic is, is definitely multiplying the, the effects that inequality of many different kinds have in uh, education. And, and, and it's something that as a faculty administrator and as a faculty member, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing on a daily basis that is students who are now under greater financial stress and uh, they are saying, I cannot live in, in college right now. I need to, or students that, that need to, to work more hours than before. So I think this is compounding in itself the, the problems that the pandemic brings on its own. I think that our um, project is, is trying to learn from this, but also present responses to, to the students and faculty on how to better tackle. Great. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm talking to Dr. Chad Iwerts Duffy and Dr. Emil Chalou about their NEH-sponsored project toward a pedagogy from crisis. This question is for both of you, so either of you can take it first. Part of the project is about expanding and rethinking the public, which is obviously something that really matters to us at ICS. The humanities have an undeserved reputation for being disciplines that are more focused on theory than application, castles in the air rather than brass tacks. How do you see this project demonstrating and putting into action the values and disciplinary approaches of the humanities? Put another way, how can and do the humanities impact people in their everyday lives that we can learn from in this moment? Yeah, I think that uh, it, it's a terrible reputation that we have for being uh, hyper-theoretical or disattached from everyday experience. Because the, the way that I think about the humanities is actually about this everyday perspective of life and how it illuminates on on, on the way that we conduct our everyday life. At the same time, some of us actually are, are discussing uh, applied humanities, right, as a, as a, a category. Um, and in a way, I mean, the fact that we have to, uh, to say applied humanities, to me, it's, it's already uh, signifying how, how much we have astray from, from that perspective. Right? So I think that the, to, to be sure, the humanities have uh, a lot to contribute to, to these discussions. It's, it's practical and it's also subjective, right? It goes to how people are seeing the problems and acting upon the perception of problems. So I would say exactly, I would put it exactly the other way. Without the humanities, we really cannot tackle this. Uh, without the humanities, we may be crunching some numbers, we may be dealing with models, but we are not dealing with people. 
Oh, I like that. Let's underscore that, right? Without the humanities, we're talking about numbers, not people. What would you add, Chad, to this discussion about what do you think is the value of the humanities, whether that's in terms of values or uh, particular disciplinary approaches to this to this research project? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I, I, I'm kind of reminded of a saying or an art installation I saw once that uh, was a series of posters that said that, you know, the sciences can work towards bringing the dinosaurs back to life, but the humanities can tell us why that's not such a great idea. <laughs> so I kind of, I kind of feel like that is going to inform my answer where um, I, I, I'm not going to say, you know, that the humanities have more to offer than the sciences, but I think it's sort of a, a false dichotomy that, you know, we live in our own silos and it just becomes so easy to not really talk to each other. Um, but one of the great things about this project has been the collaboration among a number of, of different departments, but especially English and history, you know, both humanities departments, but even in so seeing just the different methods and methodologies and ways that we understand this research that yeah i think that it's just we have to we have to be in this together and and so as the sciences and um, economics are going to be able to to give us information i think what we can contribute as humanists is the very real lived realities of what this pandemic is doing to us as people what it's going to continue to do to our teaching um, beyond this as well how we're going to interact with each other all of these very big questions are ones that I think the humanities are especially well-suited to answer in conjunction with the sciences as well. Well, and what you're saying there really uh, connects to the previous questions, which is that the humanities are relevant here, not only in terms of pedagogy and, and the student experience and analyzing kind of the cultural and social impacts of this moment, but also about those conversations about equity, accessibility, and diversity, right? Those lived experiences. The data can tell us a lot, but they can't actually give us that kind of lived detail that is also so important. Yeah, I think too that, um, so I do some statistical work with my research and I think that what, what tends to happen, right, is we're, we're interested in averages. We're in, we're interested in sort of that forced mean, um, in being able to understand a situation. But I, I think there's so much value in asking what are those outlier stories as well. And I think something that we are coming to find as a community is that when you take that mean, you're really understanding a very biased, white, male-centric approach that doesn't fit that doesn't fit in every circumstance. So absolutely, yes, I think that understanding the the stories that can be collected from um, not just the mean, but also all of those other areas um, is, is more than valuable. It's necessary and needed, yes. One of the things we'll be talking about in subsequent episodes of the podcast are parts of the dimension of this project, which includes a summer camp for instructors uh, and faculty members and graduate students to help them kind of learn to teach better. But another piece of it that I think is relevant to what we're just talking about is the research piece. So Chad, would you talk a little bit about the research project that you're developing out of this grant that does do precisely what you're talking about of trying to capture some of those perhaps outliers as well as those more typical stories? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the one that um, I'm most directly involved with is um, a survey of the BGSU community. And we define that as all undergraduate, graduate level students, postdoctorates, part-time faculty, full-time faculty, classified staff, administrative staff, um, pretty much anybody employed or connected directly that way through the university. And what we're interested in is a very quick statistical survey of people's satisfaction and experience with a number of different areas, such as their accommodation, use of technology, learning and teaching in different modalities. Um, But also, uh, I, I would say one of the largest elements of this research study is collecting those narratives. So there is definitely a qualitative element too, which is kind of the humanities wheelhouse, right? So I think one thing that I'm finding with this research is that statistical analysis is going to give us a real quick snapshot right of the community but that qualitative analysis which is going to take a lot longer is going to tell us a lot more about actually how these different criteria uh, that we've selected are are operating in people's um, environments throughout last spring this fall and the summer is applicable to so yeah we we really want to work towards building an archive that we can draw upon to be able to describe and share um, what the experience has been like teaching and learning at PGSU through the pandemic. The approach that, that we have in the humanities, methodologically speaking, is, is very much an all-of-the-above kind of, of approach, right? In that it's not that we are dismissing the quantitative information, the average, or the standard deviation, but instead that we are populating that with storytelling, right? Retrieving the storytelling and building stories based on, on all this all of the above approach. So I think that uh, Chad was saying that that's a big contribution of the of the humanities as an approach, right? It's, it's that we can integrate, we can provide that uh, integration through a storytelling. Well, then one of the things I think you're both suggesting too is that the humanities allows or is well-suited to get at the intersections of different experiences too. That's something that, you know, on a data point might look like it's an either or. Either you identify as this category or that. In those narratives, it's much easier to actually see that it's this and this and this often. And it's in those uh, complexities where you can see some of the differences and sort of think about possibilities for redress or mitigation. Yes, yes. I, uh, If I could like tag someone to this too, this sounds so much to me like uh, a feminist contextualist methodology, um, which I, I learned about through Cindy Johannick. Um, but it, it's this idea, it, just like you're saying, Jolie, that we tend to call ourselves something and that comes with it a whole slew of ways that we understand how knowledge is made or how it's how it's possible. But it really, I think, for this work, it's being driven by the research question, which is what is happening, you know, right now at BGSU and how are we teaching and learning through a pandemic? And so that can be answered through qualitative and quantitative methods. And so that's that's why we're using both. So yes, absolutely. It depends on the questions that you want answered. One of the other elements of the grant, particularly the summer camp again, which we'll talk more about in future episodes, is this idea of play. And 
that might seem like a contradiction. We are talking about a moment of crisis, and yet there's such an emphasis on play. Why was that important to you both in thinking about this grant? I think I answered the same way before, and I'm going to do it again. Um, I think as, as an Argentine who lived through one of our big national historical crises, which was the dictatorship, as a child and adolescent, uh, there was no way of experiencing that without uh, a strong power of play and humor, too, uh, in that uh, people need, need to love and people need to see things from another perspective. And there's nothing better than, than humor and play to, to get there, even under the most critical circumstances. Um, and th there are lots of... Uh, circumstantial evidence from, from all over my, my, my culture of, of origin, Argentina, Latin America in general, about the, uh, the healing power of humor. So, so I think that that was one, one perspective, right? That, that, uh, that I was thinking, uh, when, when we started talking about the importance of play, uh, here. Um, but I mean, more generally, I think it, it, uh, it makes you uh, gain some distance with the problem that you are dealing with, uh, even just to understand why the other person is having fun. It, it makes you like just step aside and then see things from a different way and, and just like uh, shift your perspective. What about for mm -hmm. you, Chad? Yeah, I think um, play for me is also a way of learning um, and specifically a way of learning that allows for failure too. Um, and I'm always really interested in my teaching in being able to find spaces where students can fail and that be okay. Um, because I think so much of teaching and learning feels so high stakes, you know, we're, we're teaching so that we are able to demonstrate that we do it well on our student evaluations of instruction. Students want to demonstrate that they have learned something so they get good grades at the end of the course. And I mean, shifting to an entirely online education for people is during a pandemic, no less, is pretty high stakes, I would say, um, at least probably the highest stakes that I've encountered as an in instructor. Um, so I think being able to in incorporate play, um, I mean, for all of the reasons Amilcar is saying, absolutely, and, and allowing for space where teachers can be failures like that's okay like we're in, and we're moving beyond that and learning um productively and i think that play allows for that i love that and i also love the idea of playfulness as a, is also about imagination right about seeing beyond what currently exists and trying to open oneself up to other possibilities right and i think that's part of what you're talking about with the pedagogy is we don't have to, we shouldn't keep being bounded by what's been done before. We should think big, imagine big, um, and try and build that environment to use, you know, to get back to sort of Emil Carr's language earlier, to create those more ideal conditions rather than being locked into kind of where we are yesterday, where we were yesterday or where we are today. So I want to conclude by asking each of you, to reflect on this moment and what lesson you hope we can take away from this. What would be kind of one thing that you'd like to see transformed 
as a result of this crisis. Amilcar, you want to go first? One thing I would like to see transformed is, is what, I mean, this, this whole idea of, of modality of, of teaching, that we think, okay, this is online, this is not online, this is in the classroom. I think right now it's so fluid that that's stirring a lot of creativity uh, and play within all the distress brought by this crisis as well, right? Uh, so one thing I, I would like to take away as a learning opportunity is, is that we start thinking beyond these buckets of how we teach and try to be more integrative of, of how we do it. I also would like to see more more imagination in in, in the way that we organize uh, teaching, even starting from the schedules and drifts, right? From a very practical point of view right now, I mean, we usually plan everything around a very strict grid. And right now, the grid doesn't exist because it really doesn't matter that much how when you you are teaching something, if you are not competing, everybody competing for the same uh, classroom or, or things like that. So I think for administrators, that's a very interesting imagination exercise because they, they couldn't see any alternative to, to the grid. Uh, and right now, we're living outside of the grid. So that that's I mean from a practical point of view some takes away takeaways that I hope that we incorporate also I and of course there's the hope that that we grow stronger through all this uh, and uh, and I mean I, I have that that strong hope that we are now more aware of what face to face contributes to an educational environment and what online contributes to an educational environment. Uh, I think we are more aware uh, than ever before about the, the inequality of the of the learning experience and how that intersects with other forms of inequality. So I hope that 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 experience sticks as learning in the future. That that we need to think inclusion first and accessibility first. Good. What about for you, Chad? What would you like us to take away from this time in history? Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll say I completely agree with everything Emil Carr has said. I mean, I think that the um, ability for us to move beyond uh, the pandemic and, and really valuing online education in a way that perhaps we haven't before, um, specifically online education that's accessible, that's anti-racist, that's feminist, um, these are all, I think, best case scenarios um, that we could move from where we are yesterday or today into the future of teaching. I also, gosh, I think reflecting on the current moment, and I know you only asked for one, but I feel like there are so many things um, that that could, could really go well um, beyond here. But I, I think ultimately, if we can realize the ways that our teaching have participated in uh, white supremacy, um, have participated in ableism, and have really been a call to action for us to think through how when we return to face-to-face -face education that we'll be able to break down a lot of those barriers and start fresh. Um, I think, and yeah, just envisioning educational futures that were way more inclusive than they have been in the past, starting, starting new with students and with each other, that I think that would be such an amazing uh, future to envision. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Listeners can keep up with 
ICS by following us on Twitter at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Marco Mendoza. Research assistance for this podcast was provided by Stevie Shurek. Discussion.